Are we good now? I thought I'd lost my voice. I did on Friday. Now I officially lost it. So I can tell you that in 14 and a half years, I've never brought a hot drink to the pulpit, uh, but I might need it. In the first hour, they got it, and about the frog got out somewhere. I don't know where the frog got out, somewhere around uh, the third point in the sermon. After that early service, somebody came and said, Pastor, it means you should have just stopped after the third point. So we'll stop wherever I run out of voice uh, in this hour today. uh, Isaiah chapter number 9 is where we are, if you'll take your Bibles and turn there. We're going to look this morning at seeing Jesus. We are in a season, obviously, where everyone recognizes the birth of Christ right after jolly old Saint Nick. And what I would like for us to do, what I always try to do with the Sunday leading into Christmas, uh, is for us to put our focus and emphasis on our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you come next week to the 1045, it's the only service we're having. If your kids are under sixth grade during the first song, I'm going to call them to the platform. And we're going to have them sing and be up here. And so whatever gifts you give them, however you spoil them on Saturday night and on Sunday morning, we're going to hear all about it next Sunday morning. We're going to have a good family time together, uh, good preaching of the Word of God to finish this out. But uh, we won't be long, but it'll be a good and enjoyable morning together next week. If we're going to see Jesus, we need to understand what he came to do, what he came to accomplish, what his purpose was. And we find it given to us here in Isaiah chapter 9, not necessarily in 6 and 7. We'll get to that in just a few moments. But I want to read verse number 2 because in chapter 7, Isaiah gives the picture that a virgin will conceive and bring forth a child. And we find in chapter 9 that he kind of blends that together with the Assyrian invasion that is going to come and capture Israel. But in chapter 9, he begins also to unfold a prophecy of what that child will be like, what he will do. Read with me verse number 2. We'll pray and then jump into the preaching this morning. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shined. Father, help us this morning to not merely to see the light, not only to see it, but to see who that light is. It's Jesus Christ. It's the child who's come. And so as we gather in this place and on this day, as we put our hearts and our minds towards the things of the Word of God, May we at this season set aside all of the distractions, and in this moment and in this hour, may we come around the Word of God and in great earnestness seek to see our Savior. Oh, we will see Him today, Lord, in creation, in the cradle, on the cross, and at His coming. Help us, I pray, to see this light that is shined upon us who live and walk in the land of the damned and the dead. Men are condemned already, Jesus said. Help us to see him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus was the fulfillment of this verse. He was the great light that shined into the darkness, into the land of the shadow of death. Whenever I read that verse, I can't help but see and understand What the psalmist said in Psalm 23, Yea, that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. 
Jesus is the fulfillment. The one element that jumps out to me over and again when you read the Christmas stories, and I don't know how your traditions are on Christmas Day, but in our house, before we open the Christmas gifts, you have to read the Christmas story. But when you read the Christmas stories this year in Matthew 2 and in Luke chapter 2, I want you to stop and see how many times the word see, saw, or seen come up. Because everyone from the shepherds to the wise men to Simeon to Aaron to Anna, I should say, to Herod, even in his murderous and treasonous way, they all wanted to see Jesus as he grew and into his childhood through his formal ministry. Nothing changed when Jesus walked this earth. Men and women came out and flooded to him so that they might see him. So this Sunday, before we go along with the rest of the world and celebrate Jesus' birth, and by the way, it's a good thing for us to do. We celebrate Christ every Sunday in this place, but the world's going to catch up to us for a week. That's a good thing. As we celebrate... I want us to see the Son of the living God this morning. I want us to get a fresh picture of who He is so that we know what He did in that manger so long ago. This morning, walk through the Word of God with me and see Jesus in all of His glory as was read in our opening admonition. As we read read the Scriptures there in John chapter 1, we behold Him full of grace and truth. That is His glory that He gives to us. We begin in our outlines this morning by seeing Jesus powerful in his creation. Powerful in his creation. The Christian story is incomplete without seeing Jesus in the creation story. The Christmas story makes no sense if you don't understand the creation story. The excellence of creation is beyond our comprehension. Look at this picture here for us this morning. This was taken from the James Webb Telescope. Any nerds in here? Following the, you can do it. I've been doing it. You can put your hand up. How many of you have been following the images from the new James Webb Telescope? All right, there's four or five of us nerds. That's okay. We can start a club after church. We can send and share text about this stuff. These are pictures of deep space. All of the dots that you see here and the clouds of plasma glass, uh, gas, most of the dots are actually galaxies, not stars. When I saw that picture, I thought, wow. This is our God. This is Jesus. You say, in that picture? Well, in that creation? Yes, most definitely. The excellence of creation, friend, truly is beyond our comprehension. And we begin letter A by seeing God or Jesus, particularly in his height of who he is. The excellence of his stature, his position high and lifted up beyond us. Look, we don't make sense of the Christmas story of God becoming flesh without understanding the creation story first. The Romans and the Greeks in their mythology had gods who would come down to man. But we had the God that created the universe who became flesh. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I want you to understand and listen. In the beginning, God, Elohim, plural noun for the name name of God, created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God. Here we have one of the persons of the Godhead, the God, the Holy Spirit, moved upon the face of the waters. And I want you to notice the next verses, the first phrase in all of them, and God said, let there be light. 
verse number 6, And God said, Let there be firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear, and it was so. Verse 11, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. Verses 14 and 15, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 20, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open of the firmament of heaven. Verse 24, and God said, you kind of get the idea so far. Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. Why? Because God said it. Verses 26 through 28, and God said, let us make man in our image, in, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female, binary you might say, created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. The point is, God in his plurality moved in his spirit and by his word in creating this world. And we know that is partly Jesus' doing and it is encompassed in his work in ministry when you go to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The very same phraseology in The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by who? Him. And without Him, Jesus Christ was not anything made that was made. In Him, Jesus Christ was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness. And we of that darkness comprehended it not, he said. Paul echoes one more time one truth on this in Colossians 1 in verses 12 through 17, giving thanks unto the Father. Now, we're picking this phrase up in the middle of a sentence. Paul wrote a very long sentence here. But picking up in the middle of that sentence, Paul says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers, or made us appropriately fit to partake of that good. The inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. There's the darkness that we comprehend it not. And hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him, that's Jesus Christ, this dear son that was mentioned before, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities, powers, all things were created by him and, notice, for him. Boy, it changes what happened in that manger when you understand your purpose for being created was for Jesus Christ's glory. It changes that manger real quick. 
He goes on and says, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. The obvious takeaway is that from the grandest expanse of space to the tiniest of the subatomic particles, Jesus Christ, the living word of God, both created and sustains all things. There is nothing more powerful than God and Jesus Christ, who is holy participant in creation. If you do not see your Savior first as your creator, then you are starting from the wrong paradigm, the wrong worldview, the wrong perspective, we might call it today. The height of his being is that he is far beyond anything we could ever hope to imagine or think. That is our God, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. We find his creative power in the height of who he is, but it's also, let her be, in his holiness, in his very nature and character. By holiness, I just mean who he is. God is holy. He tells the Israelites in Leviticus 11 and verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. To be holy means to be separated. Make no mistake this morning, God is separated from us. He's not like us. The curse, and I'm going to be careful, of modern religion is it keeps making Jesus just like you. The call of the word of God is for us to be just like him. He's different. He's holy in his very nature. And the more that we dumb down Jesus to be just like us, then why do we need to change if he's just like us? You see, in his height, we also find his holiness. It's in the power of being the creator. You're not like the creature. You're different. And he is. God in his nature is nothing like us. He is special. We are not. And that is a dose of reality for the modern thinking mind. The inane babblings of all of the social medias of the world produce nothing but morons. Morons upon morons upon morons. And yet we make them into icons and heroes, and we'll look at that in our last point this morning. There's only one that should be our hero, and that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what we find here is that in His holiness, today, even churches have dumbed down the holiness of God, and it is part of His power and purpose in creation, is that we, a lower being, don't live and act like Him, a higher being, but we can aspire to in Jesus Christ. We can become like Him through Christ, our Savior. He is special, we are not. He is the creator, we are the creature. He is holy and we are altogether unholy. The prophet Isaiah actually saw the holiness of God. What leads us into where we are in Isaiah chapter 9, he says this back in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy. It's a thrice holy God. Is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, here is the proper response to the holiness of God. Woe is me. 
for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Maybe what we need to do this morning is just get a picture of Jesus Christ in the fullness of his power as creator and king. Now, if we were to go forward looking here in chapter 9 of Isaiah where we are, we talk about the light that shines in darkness, but that light comes in the form of a baby. Look in verse number 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government, that means the authority and dominion, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, or of his authority in our lives and on this earth, and peace, that is the tranquility that comes from knowing that God in his nature, there should be no end. Upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. From henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It is God's holy nature that makes him wonderful. It's God's holiness that gives us counsel. It's God's holiness that gives him his own might. He is different by nature than us. He is in his holiness an everlasting father. In his holiness, he brings us peace. Because he is not like us at all, he is different in character and nature. We can be different when we meet him. Isaiah later wrote these words from the Lord to Israel. They did not heed the words, but they're valuable. In Isaiah 43... The first part of the verse, it says, For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Later in the chapter, he says in verse 14, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And just to drive the point home in verse 15, he says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. When we see Jesus as our powerful Creator, both high and holy, beyond us, it causes us, to have a greater understanding of the Christmas story. Because second, we see him tender and in a cradle. He's tender and in that manger. Now, Randy, I think I put a picture of a caravansary. I know you guys have all heard of these. Go ahead and show it there for me if you can. This is where Jesus was likely born. Not this one, but this idea. A caravansary. You can travel through Iran. I wouldn't highly recommend it, uh, but you can. And in Iran, they still have caravansaries that are there and you can live in. Now, the fellow standing on top of it probably is not having his picture taken in 6 BC. But the idea is those front stalls would give way to rooms. And there would be a four-square courtyard that they would bring the animals into. Imagine... The God of the universe being born in this courtyard. Kind of brings the perspective. I mean, we just saw the pictures of the countless galaxies that he hung in space. And when he comes, he doesn't come with 10,000 of his angels, as Jude writes, the message of Enoch, executing judgment with his saints. He doesn't come in his first advent that way. He comes in a cradle, in a stall, in a place like this. That speaks, letter A, to humility. If you see Jesus powerful in his creation, you must see Jesus as well tender in that cradle, innocent. 
Luke chapter 2, the passage we all read on Christmas morning. It says, It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was no room for him in the end. They didn't even have rooms in that little quadrangle. They said, no, you can have the cattle stall. You can stay outside where the animals are. Paul expresses this humility plainly in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. He says this, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he made that universe, but he came in that cradle. Yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be what? Rich. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus, the creator and sustainer, was rich but became poor for us. There's no comparison in our everyday lives as to what this actually means. To be infinite and willingly clothe yourselves in the finite. There's no understanding of it. There's no true meaning of it. To be immortal yet put on what? Immortality. That's what we get. But what did Jesus do? He, put on, he took immortality and put on mortality. To be God yet become man. Now, some of you know I dabble in woodworking. You know how you can tell I'm not a good woodworker yet? I have all my fingers. Every YouTube video that I watch of woodworkers, there's always somebody missing a finger or something like that. And Jessica says, are you sure you want to be watching those guys? They're missing a finger. I'm like, yeah, but they know what they're doing because they made the mistake. I dabble in it. But the best analogy I could come up with, the God of the universe that made hundreds of trillions of galaxies with trillions upon trillions of stars in those galaxies coming and wrapping himself in human flesh in a cradle is me in going and becoming a chair that I made out by my fire pit. You might say, well, that would be dumb. Right, I would take all of the liberties and freedoms, all the autonomy that I have in my own personhood, and instead of using that, I would become a chair that a bird could sit on and do other things on. That you could sit on, inanimate, not functional except for to do the one thing that I was functioning to do, to be a chair. The rain beats on the chair, uh, the sun beats on the chair, the weather bakes the chair, it, it beats it up and it batters it, but the chair is still just a chair. And while that is the best analogy I can come up with, it still doesn't even touch what the God of the universe did in becoming us, one of us. You see, if you don't understand the creation story, you're, you're going to have a hard time understanding the Christmas story or why it's important. Here's the humility of Christ's birth, as stated by Paul to the Philippians. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was God. He was equal with him. But made himself of no reputation, 
took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. As if that was not humbling enough for God, the infinite, to become finite in that season. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The tender cradle shows us Christ's humility, but we also see letter B in the Christmas story, his honor. It is why we magnify the name of Jesus. It's because he came in that cradle and he lived that consistent life and went to the cross of Calvary. We know the story from Matthew 2, but I'll read it again for us today. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for... Thus it is written by the prophets, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, who had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, and when they, came, and when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, the common misconception is there were three wise men. I don't know how many there were. But I know they brought three gifts because it's the only thing recorded for me. So the wise man, the wise woman, the wise boy or girl will always approach Christ with a heart of giving back to him because of all that he has given us. All that he means. The three gifts speak to the king, the priest, and the prophet. The gift of gold to the Christ child was symbolic of his kingly authority and indicative of his divinity. God in flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. The gift of frankincense to the Christ child was symbolic of his willingness to become a sacrifice. Holy giving himself to the, his high priestly role fulfilling completely what was necessary. The gift of myrrh showed the prophet's path. Now, I often wonder, who was the wise man that brought myrrh? I'd like to have been the wise man that brought gold. Look, I think you are the king. The guy that brought the frankincense, I, I think you are going to be like the high priestly role. You're going to fulfill that function. The third guy was, you're going to die. Myrrh was symbolic of suffering and affliction. Bitterness that comes from it. The gift of myrrh showed the prophet's path that Jesus would walk. Myrrh was a spice used in embalming a body. It was also sometimes mingled with wine to form a strong drink. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 23, many theologians believe it was the drink that was given to Jesus on the cross to dull the sense or sensory uh, overload that would attack the body on Calvary's tree. Simply put, myrrh symbolized bitterness, suffering, and affliction. Again, think of Mary and Joseph. Thank you for the gold. Thank you for the frankincense and the myrrh. But that was his reality. The king, the priest, and the prophet's path. 
The baby Jesus would grow to suffer greatly as a man and would pay the ultimate price when he gave his life on the cross of Calvary for all who would put their trust in him. These wise men knew that the scriptures said of this baby and what was foretold. They prepared gifts so that his parents and we readers some 2,000 years later would understand the proper honor that is due him for what he did for us. We see him in creation. We see him in the cradle. Third, we see him dying on the cross. The cross is the great helper for the soul of the believer. It's the only place to which we can run. It's the only guarantee of heaven. But that cross is a scene of great tragedy. By tragedy, I mean suffering, destruction, and distress. When we see Jesus on the cross, we see first the hatred. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3, the first part of that verse says this, For consider him that endured such contradiction. That word contradiction in the first part of that verse means rebellion, opposition, and hatred of sinners. The writer of Hebrews is saying, I want you believers to consider. I want you to think on what he did, what he endured. The ruling class hated Jesus. Why? Because he challenged their power. The religious class hated Jesus because he brought relationships, not rituals. The regular man ultimately hated Jesus because Jesus would cause them to have, give up control of their own choices and surrender those choices to him. So you had the ruling class, the religious class, and the regular everyday man all ended up hating Jesus. That's why at the end, they were all crying, crucify him. Yet every single one that tried him said he's innocent. This guy's not guilty of anything. It was pure hatred towards our Savior, Jesus Christ. Seeing Jesus hanging upon the cross causes us to realize that our sins put him there. Adam's original sin and our perpetual sins are what Christ died for on Calvary. I don't believe Adam in the garden came to Eve and took the fruit and said, Well, I hate God. Give me that fruit. I don't believe that is it at all. But the Bible tells us you can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. And what we find in the garden is that Adam loved the idea of being in relationship with his wife rather than honoring the word of God. So he willingly of his free will took, chose and ate of that fruit. And in that moment, he loved himself and thus hated God. Adam chose to love himself more than loving God. That is the very definition of sin. It is the heart of hatred towards God. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4 says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Adam, in following Satan's lie in the garden, condemned our race. That condemnation led to a race that hates its creator, even though our creator still loves us. Romans 5, 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet those contradictory sinners, Christ died for us. The hatred of the cross, by the way, is not just seen in mankind's hatred towards God, but it's also God's hatred of sin. Can I tell you this morning, if you are a sinner on your way still to hell, God loves you in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to be very careful when I say this, but it's very accurate from the Word of God. But God hates 
your sin in the person of God the Father. Jesus Christ came to die for your sins. And if you do not accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are going to suffer the wrath of God for the rest of eternity. How do I know that? Because the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. That's the hatred that we're talking about. When we see Jesus on that cross, we don't see forgiveness, though that is the ultimate result of it. What you must see on the cross is God's wrath being assuaged, being paid for, sin's debt being canceled. It leads us to let her be the horror When you look at the cross, and and it's an odd thing that the cross is what we all wear around our necks and it's a symbol that we put in our churches and everywhere. It's a symbol of horror. Now, it's a symbol of life because he conquered the grave, but itself it is a symbol of horror. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46 probably is one of the two or three most powerful verses in all of the Bible. It says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which being interpreted is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that lonely moment, Jesus Christ was abandoned by the Father and the Spirit. And he alone hung for your sins. Stop and think that through. Doctrinally, it's a very deep concept. A God who for eternity past, meaning there is no concept of time in eternity, who in eternity past had never had disunion. God who from the moment at that payment was made forever in the future, including this morning as we preach, has never experienced or known disunion. In that day, on that moment, at that time, he was abandoned for you. You can understand then why in the garden he was praying with great drops of blood because he understood the hour that was upon him. There's great horror in what we see in our Savior Jesus Christ. It ought to drive a deep dread into our own life towards sin and our activity in it. If you're here this morning and you've not received Jesus Christ as your Savior, then this horror is still your reality in waiting. Do you understand that if you don't receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the cry that he makes from Calvary is the cry that you will make for eternity? God, why have you forsaken me here? Because you rejected me because you wanted nothing to do with me. The horror of Calvary was that Jesus Christ would be for the briefest of times separated from his Father. The moment would feel to the eternal like eternity. God made him to be sin for us. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? There has to be a reason, yes, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He had to die, be separated from life and the source of life for sin so that you and I do not have to die for those sins. That is the horrifying thought. My sin caused God the Son to die on that tree. Properly held, though, that thought will motivate us to never continue in sin. 
properly understood, it will cause every reasonable mind to confess their sins and to receive Christ as their Savior. You see, when you are understanding with clear vision as to who Jesus was in creation, who Jesus was in the cradle, and who Jesus was on that cross, we then understand the fourth and final point, the triumphance of his coming. He is triumphant when he will come again. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ and you think he's a fairy tale like the jolly old Saint Nick, then you don't care what I'm saying this morning. That's up to you. I like to tell people you're going to have faith in something, either what the Bible says or what you think. I'd rather take some, a book that has actually changed nations, turned whole hearts and families back to the Lord, made better men out of people. But if you trust your reason, go ahead and trust that. But here's the point. The Bible that tells us all of these other truths tells us that he is coming again. And Jesus has two returns, and I'm not going to get into eschatology this morning, but simply to say there's the rapture that awaits us of the church age, and then his physical return to this earth. These things are told to us in the book of Revelation, and there's a lot that's told to us in the book of Revelation. What I want to show us this morning is two quick thoughts as to what we see when we see Jesus in his coming. First, we find our hero. We find our hero. Now, I will be honest this morning. I don't think anybody said, all right, give me a list of all the people that you idolize that are your heroes, that anybody's like, well, I'm going to start with Jesus. I mean, there might be one of those kids in here, you know, takes their glasses up and like, well, pastor, (laughs) I am going to say Jesus first. Okay, great. I would imagine if I took our teenage kids out and just in the privacy of the moment, maybe at lunch or something in a group, I said, hey, who are some of the people? Well, I love this influencer on the Instapot. Oh, they're fantastic. Oh, I watched a video from Tic Tac, and I realized that China has all of my data now, but the point is I love this person. They make me laugh. They are my influencer. And we have influencers everywhere. Our world is filled up with Influencing idiots. But I wonder how many people actually said, yeah, Jesus is my hero. The picture that we have in Revelation is of a conquering king. And I'm going to just be honest with you. I do like to play favorites. I like to root for the team that I think is going to win. I mean, I'm not just a bandwagon fan, but I like winners. If you like winners, you should like Jesus. He wins. Right? Revelation chapter 1 is where we see this play out. In verse 9, the Bible begins, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the Isle of Patmos, or the Isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He simply says there, hey, look, I suffered persecution and was put out here on this island. And by the way, while I was there, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's a good place to be on the Lord's Day. Would to God we would come into this place on Sunday morning and Sunday night and be in the Spirit of the Lord on the Lord's Day. But he said, I was in the Spirit of the Lord on the Lord's Day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. 
into Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and into Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, here it is again, seeing Jesus, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool. They were pure as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like in the fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. By the way, they did burn in the furnace. The feet of Jesus walked to the gates of hell, he's going to tell us, and took the keys to get death and hell. And so his feet were burned, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that fourth in the furnace with them. He walked into the very gates of hell and won. And his voice was as a sound of many waters. That's a wonderful statement. It was thunderous. You ever been to Niagara Falls? If you haven't, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you have, you do. You can't hear. (laughs) It's just, that's all it is. That's the picture here. It thunders. Everything else falls silent. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength at noonday, the brightest of the bright. And when I saw him, here he sees Jesus again, I fell at his feet as dead. The right and proper response to seeing Jesus Christ in all of his glory. But the right response from our Lord of glory is what we see in the next verse. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. That settles it. So be it. And have the keys of hell and of death. The image is not here of a humble servant, but of a heroic conqueror. One who has literally defeated the forces of hell and all the evil that it could hurl at him. His commanding presence condemns even a faithful and redeemed man who is suffering for Jesus like John. If John replied that way or responded that way, how ought we to respond to Christ in his glory? When Jesus comes, we will not see the good shepherd, we will see the chief shepherd. That does not mean he will stop being the good shepherd. He will always be good, for he is God. But when he manifests himself to us again, it will not be in humility. It will be heroically as God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But the second thing that we see is our home. Our home. When we see Jesus, we see the finish line. We see what it's all about. It gets hard sometimes to be an actually good Christian, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's just hard. doesn't mean it's not worth it. I mean, we sing the old hymn, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And it's true and it's right, and I'm not meaning to cast an aspersion on it. All I'm simply saying is sometimes it's really hard being a good Christian because all you see around you is darkness, filth, evil, and wickedness everywhere you turn. How do you make sense out of it? Just remember this isn't our home. Jesus said this in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, you know. And the way, you know. This is wonderful. He's saying to them, I've taught you these things. You've got to listen to these things. Thomas, oof. 
saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have what? Seen him. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, and we'll close. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Do you know who that is? That's Jesus Christ. He tabernacled with us, the New Testament says. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be Emmanuel with them. And be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things, the old world, is gone. When we see Jesus, it will be worth it all. May I say this morning in closing, if you do not see Christ as your creator who humbled himself in the cradle and hung for you on the cross of Calvary, then you will not be looking forward to his coming again. But for those of us who have met Jesus Christ and have seen him in all of his glory for who he is and what he's done, we are excited. Christmas is like Easter. It's just another Sunday. It's an exciting one if it's the only one you celebrate. I hope you have a good time with it. But every Sunday is an exciting Sunday because we celebrate the resurrection of our living Savior. I hope in this Christmas season you see him for who he is. Father, help us as we close our thoughts today. Bless in the word.